And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Last week we began uh, in John chapter 4. We finished up chapter 3 a couple weeks ago. And here we go into a very familiar section of Scripture. But at the same time, there are so many things inside of this section of Scripture that we have grown so familiar, so accustomed to, that we forget the grandeur that is in these verses. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see Jesus. The Bible is a book, as Brian was saying this morning, the Bible is a book that helps us to know who God is. And as we know who God is, we know who we are. So the Bible is a book about knowing God and about knowing who we are in light of who he is. That's why we go through verse by verse. We don't just pick and choose topics. Hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. We just go. We started in John chapter 1, and we just go from verse 1 all the way through the end of the book so that we don't pick and choose what we want the Bible to say. We just let the Bible speak. And as we let the Bible speak this morning to our souls, I believe we will see again who God is and who we are in light of him. We looked last week at the beginning of this chapter. So let's just read it together and we'll make some comments as we go through, just reminding us of where we have come. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went away again into Galilee. So he hears there's a turmoil there, and he says, we're getting out of here for a number of reasons. When Jesus does one thing, he's doing a million things. And he had, verse 4, to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to. He could have gone several other routes, but he had to because he had an appointment with this woman at this well in this city. And so he comes to that city, to Sychar. Verse 5, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph, And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus being wearied from his journey, we see his deity, we see his humanity on full display, is sitting. He was sitting on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and we said that that is more than likely noon. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, give me a drink. Those four words cross religious, ethnic, moral lines that have been in place for generations, His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He had probably sent them so that he could have this appointment with this woman at this time. Verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. Literally, uh, in that parenthesis, it says Jews don't share common utensils together. They don't share the same spoons with Samaritans. We talked about why that is. There's racism going on here. The Samaritans, when the exile and the captivity had happened, they had intermarried and had um, developed a religion that was uh, syncretistic in, in mentality. It was combining a lot of different things. So their syncretism, not only with religion but with ethnicity, caused pure Jews to hate them and despise them. And so she knows that. She says, how are you talking to me? And Jesus answers and says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
talked about the new birth. You would have asked. All you can do is ask, and he gives. And so she says, you don't have anything to draw water with because the well is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? Where are you going to get it? Just like Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, how can you enter into your mother's womb a second time and be born? Um, So too, this woman is misunderstanding Jesus' spiritual point. She says, you don't have a bucket, and you're not greater than our father Jacob, verse 12, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You're not greater than him, are you? She thinks, no, you're not. Jesus says, I am. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And we looked last week at the satisfactions that our hearts desire. We cling to so many things that this world has to offer that leave us wanting more. And Jesus is saying, I can give you satisfaction that can never be taken away. The woman answers, verse 15, and says, Sir, give me this water. That's a good answer, but the reason is not a good reason, so that I won't be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's still thinking temporal, physical, natural. I just don't want to come here with my bucket anymore for a number of different reasons. Then Jesus says, these are the verses that I want to just read And then we'll pray, we'll ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll dive in. Verses 16 through 26. Jesus says, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain... You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. But when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, there is so much in this text. I pray that your spirit would clarify the things that we need to hear. God, we all have cavernous hearts, cavernous souls that are filled with pockets wanting satisfaction, desiring satisfaction, and we turn so many other places other than you. We spurn you. We say you're not good enough. God, I pray we would see ourselves in this passage as this woman, and you are pursuing her And you're pursuing us radically just as much today as you did with her back then. Bless our time this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, For our purposes this morning, we're going to break this section up into three uh, points. Jesus teaches 
on three main sections, and you'll see them as we go through them. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll even see there's three main sections. Number one, Jesus teaches on man's sinful heart. This is verses 16 through 18. Number two, Jesus teaches on the Father's seeking heart, which is 19 through 24. And number three, Jesus teaches on the Savior's saving heart, and that's verses 25 through 26. So let's pick it up in verse 16. She had just said, Sir... Give me this water. I want that water. Now, if I had been Jesus, and praise the Lord, I'm not, but if I had been Jesus, I would have said, "Mm, that's not the kind of reason why I'm looking to give you the water. You want the water so that you don't have to come back here again. I want to give you the water so that your spiritual thirsts will all be met. That's why I want to give you this water. But Jesus doesn't go there next. Jesus takes a turn And it is a radical turn. Let's listen to this as if we've never heard it before. We know this account, but this is a radical turn. He says, after she says, give me this water. I want the water. I don't want to have to come back here. He says, hey, go call your husband. Go call your husband. Why does he say that? There's a couple different reasons why. I think there's clues here as to why Jesus goes there. It's a turn. It's abrupt, but there's clues. Verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come what? Here. I don't want to make too much out of this, but as I do word studies in the Greek, as I look into the original text, this word pops out to me for two reasons. Number one, she had just said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way what? Here to draw. Now you go, well, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Here's why it's interesting. These two words for here are two words that are used in the Gospel of John two times in this account. Now, again, I don't want to make too much of it, but what Jesus is saying is you don't want to come here for a reason, and I'm going to call out that reason and tell you to bring your husband to come here. If you don't want to come here and you don't want to come here because people are ridiculing you, People are calling you all kinds of names. You've had five husbands and now you're living with somebody who isn't your husband. You don't want to come here. And so I'm telling you, bring your husband. Have your husband come here. If here is the issue, then have him come here to do the work for you. So I think that as he's pointing out her failed marriages, he's pointing out the fact that she is an outcast. She doesn't want to come here anymore. Number two, Clue number two, Jesus knows her situation, intentionally exposes her sin. He knows it. He's the son of God. He's intentionally exposing her sin. And oh, that Jesus would do that to our hearts even at this second and we wouldn't kick against it. Remember what John 3 verse 20 said? Go back to John chapter 3 verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Why? Because they have fear that their deeds will be exposed. Nobody wants their deeds, their sinful deeds, their sinful thoughts, their sinful desires, their sinful attitudes. They don't want them exposed. So they stay as far away from Jesus as possible. And so what Jesus is doing is exposing her sin. Our pride says, I'm not that bad. So I don't need Jesus because I'm not that bad. There are people worse than me. Or our shame says, I'm so bad that I don't even want to think about it, so I'm going to stay away from Jesus. I don't want him to expose. Or I need to clean myself up before I enter into church. I need to fix myself, and then I can be with God, but I'm too dirty. 
Jesus says, you are a sinner and I'm a greater savior than your sin. So he's exposing the sin. He's drawing it to the surface. He does this for so many different reasons. He's showing us that our sin is wretched, that we are depraved, that it is evil and wicked. He's showing us that we're broken and helpless. He's showing us that we're not satisfied in him. He's bringing it and he's saying this is promised satisfaction time and time again for you. And you keep going back and it never satisfies. Sin never fully satisfies. It lies. And he's offering us living water. But he's saying if you want the living water, you have to leave this broken cistern. You have to leave this dirty well. So he's exposing the dirtiness of that well so that we would become those who would worship the Father And God means to have this woman as a worshiper. So Jesus is exposing her sin to get her to understand her need for a Savior. Practically, by the way, just two points of practical application on that. Number one, are there people in your life that you despair of, that you think are great sinners, hopeless causes, never going to receive the gospel? I know people in my life that are like that. That I just think, man, there's no way they will ever accept the gospel. That's wrong thinking. Jesus never thought that. Jesus didn't say to this woman, man, it just seems like you're stuck and you're just not going to believe. Jesus keeps pressing in and going after her and exposing things to offer her living water. So don't give up hope. Pray and ask the Lord to work. Number two, practically, this is why we have small groups, by the way. God is pleased very often during the preaching of his word to expose sin. God is pleased to do that. But when I'm preaching, um, there's only so far that we can go practically. As sin is exposed by the preaching of God's word, there's only so far we can go practically. And so what small groups are meant to do, God has designed the church to have two primary means of encouragement and exhortation. Preaching and fellowship. Um, preaching is what we do here, but we don't really get that much fellowship. That's what small groups are designed for. That's one of the reasons why people don't like going to small groups, because small groups are designed to dive into your heart, to expose sin. Say, you know what, I don't think I've ever really shared this with anybody before. This is what I'm struggling with. Uh, I'm normally afraid to share that. This is why we need grace. This is why we're going through side by side. We don't go, how could you struggle with that? We say, of course you struggle with that. We're all sinners. And let's go to the word to figure out what that sin is, what you're seeking to be satisfied by, and where Jesus fills that need. Let's turn from sin. That's what small groups are for. We need each other. So take those first steps in small groups. Own. Hey, you know what? I don't think I've ever shared this before, and I don't really know where it comes from, so hang on as I just try to speak this out. And you share. This is what I struggle with. Be very practical. We can't do that in this setting. We did that just this last Thursday. We were just sharing, I struggle in this, with this in relationships. Very specific, practical things. And we went to the Word to see the grace of God in our lives. So, clue number one, the Word here, Jesus is exposing. Number two, he's intentionally getting at her sin. Number three, here's clue number three as to what Jesus is doing. Jesus never brings this back up. He says, go call your husband. They talk about that for one sentence, and then he never talks about it again. So this isn't the issue. This is the symptom. This is the symptom of what the real issue is. So he's using this to expose her heart. He's going to bring no closure whatsoever to this comment. 
She's going to shift the subject to worship. He's going to be fine going right to that. So all he's doing, if we can sum it up in verse 16, is he's exposing the thirstiness of her soul and that the things that she has tried to satisfy her thirsty soul with have never worked. Five failed marriages, now living with somebody who is not her spouse. No one goes through six sexual relationships without starting desperately thirsty or ending desperately thirsty. This woman is desperately thirsty. And Jesus is drawing it out. He's drawing it out. I'd be frightened to be this woman. It's an amazing thing to be known fully. It's a painful, scary thing to be known fully. But to be known by the God of the universe is a beautiful thing. We see ourselves in this passage. We see an evidence of not drinking deeply from Jesus. One of the evidences of not drinking deeply from Jesus is just bouncing around from one thing to the next to the next. Maybe this will satisfy. Maybe this will satisfy. Maybe this will satisfy. She just keeps bouncing around from man to man to man to man. Maybe it's not men for you. Could be friends. Could be jobs. Could be sex. Could be churches. Could be hobbies. Could be games. Could be hairstyles. Could be wardrobes, cars, houses. But if there's no deep contentedness in Jesus Christ, you just keep bouncing. What we're looking for, what we want, is a satisfaction that we can drink deeply from and just settle. Some people go, well, that's boring. I don't want to settle. I want to just keep bouncing. Um, It doesn't mean that when we settle, we're boring. In fact, when we are most settled in Jesus Christ, that's when we can be the riskiest to share the love of Jesus with others. People who are most deeply contented in Jesus Christ are the people who are most free to bounce around without trying to drink from other people and be satisfied by others, but to just pour out service and love and grace to others. So Jesus is exposing her heart. How does she respond? Verse 17, the woman answers and says, I have no husband. I have no husband. Now, that's a true statement. It's a very true statement. Jesus says it twice. That's a true statement. You have correctly said, and then the end of verse 18, you have said this truly. This is amazing in counseling, in just relationships and communication. You can lie by telling the truth. You can lie by telling the truth. And some people who are so stuck in a rut, she is totally telling the truth. And she's covering up and she's hiding. She's lying by not bringing everything else out by telling the truth. Jesus won't have any of that. (laughs) And says, you've answered correctly. You have no husband. You've had five, verse 18, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. So you're living in sexual immorality with a man now. Jesus draws out our sinful hearts. We are all the same way. Sin is trying to be satisfied in anything other than Jesus. We're just like this woman. So often we look and we say, wow, she's got it. Very bad. She's bad off. This is not good. But at least praise the Lord. I'm not like that. If we say that, we're just like the Pharisees. Praise the Lord. I'm not like that tax collector. No, we're just like this woman. With things going on in our hearts, nobody even knows. And Jesus does. He exposes them in various ways to say, you're chasing after things that don't satisfy. Man's sinful heart. 
How does she respond to that statement? This is point number two, the father's seeking heart. Verse 19, she responds by changing the subject a little bit. By the way, animals do this. I don't know if you know this. Um, If you trap an animal, Paul Hodgson could tell you this. If you trap an animal and you just leave it there with no food, when it gets hungry enough and desperate enough and knows it's going to die, it will literally bite its leg off, chew through its leg to get out and to find food. When you feel trapped, when somebody whether it's Jesus himself through the word or somebody around you starts pressing in, starts hitting a nerve, exposing sin, you move on to something else. And that's what she does. It's as if she's saying, hey, Jesus, while we're on the topic of my adultery, where do you think we should worship? Just moves right away. I don't know if you've ever been there with people sharing the gospel. You talk about sin, you talk about Jesus, you talk about their need for a savior. And they go, yeah, that's all good, but what about the ark? How could everything fit on the ark? Or, yeah, that's good, but what about Jonah? Can somebody really get, just, let's go somewhere else. What I love about Jesus is he uses where she goes. Um, he says, you know what, I'm not going to talk about that topic, but I'll talk about the issue inside of it. Um, or I'll stay on the topic. We'll leave the topic there, but the issue that you're looking at, I'm not talking about that. There's an issue inside of the topic. We'll stay on what you're talking You're talking about worship. We'll stay on that because that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about worshiping the Father and being satisfied in Him above all things. So he goes with it. He embraces her topic. He doesn't embrace the specifics of her issues. He's going to say we need to worship in spirit. So it's not a geographical issue. It's a spiritual issue. He's been trying to get there the whole time with living water for your soul. And so he says, perfect, we'll go there. Oh, how I love that Jesus does this. Not once in this passage does he say, I'm going to give up on you. I'm done with you. And this is what I want us to see. If you, if you walk away with nothing this morning other than this, I believe these verses are preaching to us yet again. Jesus is saying this morning, I know everything there is to know about you. Everything. So much so that he scares this woman. He's saying, I know it all. And I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I know everything about you. And what should turn me away is making me come closer to you. I'm pursuing you. I'm seeking you. I want you. Sin and all. I want you. She says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Verse 19. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people. Back to a little racism. You guys. Say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. But Jesus says to her, and I love these two or three first words, woman, which is not as black and white as it sounds. Remember, he called his mother that. Um, It's a term that has a little bit of endearment to it just to say friend, but we're not related. So he's, he's not saying you, you Samaritans. He's singling her out with love. And then he says, believe me. Believe me, there's so much inside of those two words, but just for our purposes this morning, Jesus is saying, believe in me, believe in what I'm saying to you. I am that fountain. I'm telling you the truth, but he could have said that in a much more academic way. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, believe me. 
I have something that I want you to know. I have something that you need to know for your soul. What is it? An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. They both had temples. There was an argument between the two. Jesus says it's not about that. There's an hour coming when it doesn't matter. 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. Mount Gerizim is going to be leveled. Uh, the temple on Mount Gerizim is going to be leveled. So Jerusalem, Mount, they're going to be gone. You can go to both of those places today. No temple in Jerusalem and no temple in Mount Gerizim. He says, you will worship, end of verse 21, you will worship the Father. This is very interesting. Why didn't he say God? Why didn't he say God? Two reasons, I think. Number one, he links it with what she had said. She had said, verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. We have traditions, and the men who brought the traditions about have said this is the way it's to be. And he's saying, "Mm, your fathers don't matter. It's the Father, one and only Father. But number two, if God is Father, then that means he has children. You can't be a father unless you have kids. Who are his kids? That's who he's seeking. He's saying to this woman, God is the father. And he's seeking you as his child. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. This isn't some racist remark. He's saying that salvation has been prophesied to come through the line of Judah, through the line of David, going all the way back from Abraham. The Messiah has to come through a Jewish lineage. And he says, you don't, you don't worship what, or you're worshiping what you don't know. This is similar to what Paul says with Mars Hill. You're worshiping an unknown God. This is key worship that is authentic, that is genuine, but is misdirected, directed to a wrong thing, is still false worship, no matter how passionate, how authentic, how genuine it might be. That's why he's going to say you have to worship in truth. If you worship with all your heart, but you're worshiping something incorrect, no matter how genuine or authentic you are, it is still false worship. That's why he's saying it's not about where you are. It's about who you're worshiping. Verse 23, an hour is coming and now is. So there's an hour coming. That's when Jesus is going to die on the cross in verse 21. An hour is coming. I'm going to die on the cross. It's not going to matter location. And ultimately, there's an hour coming after that when the temple is going to be destroyed. But verse 23, there's an hour coming and actually is now in existence when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's pursuing the Father. Nobody is seeking to worship him. He is seeking them to be worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. As he pursues you to be his worshiper, we need to understand that is an immense privilege. John Calvin says we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. He's pursuing you for that. He's pursuing you for that. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a couple aspects in this passage that, again, is familiar, but I just want to point them out. First of all, must. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship. We've seen three big musts 
so far. And they're really the three biggest musts in the book of John. John chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And John 4, verse 24, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean, spirit and truth? I've heard many, many sermons on this. Spirit, you know, get your, your body into it, get your spirit into it, and truth, get your mind into it. It's a lot more simple than that. He just said God is spirit, and he just said that there is no geographical location where you have to go to worship God. So when he says you must worship in spirit, that's the reference. You must worship in spirit. It's not pertaining to a certain place. You can worship anywhere. William Cooper said, Jesus, where thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat, wherever Wherever they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. To worship in spirit means you no longer have to go to the temple to worship God, which is what you had to do. A beautiful picture of this. We studied with the beginning of the church in Philippi when we first planted this church. Uh, Acts chapter 16. That's worshiping in spirit because the temple became what for them? It became a jail cell. A jail cell is a temple To worship God. Worshiping in spirit just means wherever you are, you can worship. Now, of course, inside of that, there's aspects of what it means. God is spirit. He's not a human. He's not a man. He's not confined to space. Therefore, we aren't going to be confined to space as we worship him. He's everywhere. We can worship him everywhere. Our spirits are made alive by the new birth through the Holy Spirit so that our spirits can embrace God's Spirit as treasure, God the Spirit as treasure, is better than anything else this life has to offer. It's much more than a physical aspect. Spurgeon says God does not regard our voices. Some of us can say amen to that. He hears our hearts. It's not about our voices, it's our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, then we have not sung at all. We have to worship in spirit, but not just worship anywhere and anything. You can worship anywhere, but you have to worship in truth. You have to worship in truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. How do we know how we're supposed to worship God? Study this book. You have to gather together with believers. On Sundays, we gather together to sing corporately because if we didn't, we would be denying commands that this passage or that this book has, that it holds. We have to live in community with one another. If we don't do that, we're forsaking the assembly of gathering together with believers. This book gives us how we are to worship and it gives us who we are to worship. Your worship, my worship only goes as high as as our soul goes down deep into the scriptures. A lot of people have this weird misconception that the less I know about God, the more I'll be able to worship him. The more I know about him, the more I'll think I figured him out and he's going to be less worshipful to me. We can say just a a wholehearted baloney to that statement. The more you understand God, the more you have to worship. The more you understand who he is, the more you stand in awe of him. The more you understand him... As he has revealed himself in scripture, going back to what Brian said, we study the word. We study this because worship must be in truth. And if we don't worship according to who God truly is, then we worship incorrectly. And it is 
false worship. What is truth? John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. So the word is truth given to us by the spirit. We worship in spirit and truth. The truth is God's word, which reveals the son. The spirit loves to portray the son as all satisfying. That's what worship is. And we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the core value of worship, the W of of worship. You must worship in spirit and truth together. It's not about where you are. It's not a where. It's a whom. So Jesus goes there. She tries to derail him, and he says, I'll jump on those tracks. I'll go there with you. Who are you worshiping? I think she's getting it. Verse 25, Jesus reveals point number three, the saving heart of the Savior. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one or king. And when that one comes, he's going to declare all things to us. Maybe he has answers that you don't have. You're a prophet, but maybe you're not the Messiah. And he says to her, I who speak to you am. My Bible says he, it's in italics. It means it's not there in the original. The original is I am he who speaks to you. I am. I am God. Yahweh. I am that one. And I have come to do everything that I just said. I've come to pursue you. I've come to give you living water if you would have it. I've come to expose your sin and to to love you in spite of it. When we get to the end of verse 26, we really get to C.S. Lewis's um, kind of three main questions about Jesus as you're reading through the scriptures. He's either a liar, either he just lied here, He said he's the Messiah. He is God come in the flesh. Either he lied, which we shouldn't follow him if he lied. Or he's a lunatic. He's just crazy. He thinks way too highly of himself than he should. Or he truly is who he claimed to be. There are no other options there. So my question to you this morning is, how do you take Jesus? Is he a good person in your mind? If he is just a good teacher, then he's a liar because he claimed to be so much more. Is he just a crazy person to you, not somebody worth following? Or is he Lord? If he is not Lord in your life, if he is not your king, then you are going to continue to move around to other less satisfying things until one day you stand before him face to face and he's going to say, I was there for you the whole time to give you living water and you never came. 23 times in the Gospel of John we read, I am Seven times Jesus is saying, I am something. I am the bread of life. I am the branch. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. All references to his eternal Godhood. And he's revealing himself. This is who I am. I am the Savior of the world coming to talk to you. The fact that Jesus is having this conversation with an immoral woman in an obscure village should tell us something. God is not seeking worshipers only among the significant and popular people, the successful and powerful ones. No, the maker of the universe is seeking true worshipers of us all. Now, again, there's so much in this passage that we can see for evangelism. 
We should be like Jesus in so many different ways. But before we go there, we need to realize we are being pursued by the God of the universe, loved despite our sin. He says, I'm going to expose it to just show you this is what's standing in the way between a relationship that we could have that would be an everlasting satisfaction. And I can deal with this. I can get this out of the way. Would you have that? That's the question he asks us today. Do you worship Jesus in truth? Do you worship God in truth? We worship him in spirit often. We sing songs at our houses. It's not not localized to one building. Kent Hughes says this, Truth means that we are to worship what is true about God. In other words, worshiping in truth occurs when we worship in accordance with what God has revealed about himself. That is true worship. The converse is also true. True worship does not take place when we do not worship in accordance with what God has revealed about himself. So what we think about God is of great importance. So I ask you in conclusion, what do you think about God? What do you think about Jesus? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or your Lord? Is the truth of God's word in your life today manifesting a heart that would worship Jesus because he has pursued you in grace. My prayer is that we would all be humbled to the point of seeing there's no reason he ever should have singled us out. Why is the Father seeking me to worship him? No reason. But he did. That's amazing grace. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and instruct our hearts this morning. What amazing grace you have given to us by pursuing us, despite us. By pursuing us, even though we are not worthy of being pursued. God, with as many people as we have in this room, we have souls that are thirsty, that are hungry, that are desiring to be satisfied by something. And we go all over the place. We could share stories of how many things have failed us time and time again, just like this woman. Five marriages, one immoral relationship with a live-in boyfriend. And you say to her, you are trying to be satisfied and it's not working. The world has despised her. She is an outcast, has to go to the well at noon because... She can't go when others are watching or else she would be sneered and ridiculed. And you say, I will take those who are ridiculed. I will take those who humbly admit I'm a sinner. God, create in us a humility at this church that would never see ourselves as better than others. Say, oh, I struggle with sin, but not that kind of sin. God, we are just like this woman. Thank you for reminding us again this morning how you have pursued us. And I pray that as we conclude this service, you would be glorified to remind us yet again the passion that you have for worshipers, the passion that you have to seek those who would find their satisfaction in you. You love us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.